0: Hi, and welcome to Terra 2s Climate Podcast. I'm Keethe Manyan, your host. Did you know we are in the midst of launching several short-term courses, and one of these happens to be about climate smart buildings. It runs over four weeks. It's essentially a crash course in climate-positive building strategies. From existing building operations to new construction, learn how regenerative practices can boost health, and enhance productivity, save money, amplify resilience and fight climate change. We have a special guest host today, Dr. Kamal Kapadia, who's co-founder at Terra.2. Dr. Kamal Kapadia has 22 years of work, research and teaching experience in the fields of climate change, clean energy and sustainable development. She has taught on climate change at the University of California, Berkeley, and at the Environmental Change Institute, University of Oxford. Our second guest of the year is Micah Lang, who's catalyzing the zero-carbon transition as senior green building planner at the City of Vancouver. Micah is a climate change and sustainability professional with great expertise in green building policy, local climate change mitigation strategies, greenhouse gas quantification and inventory protocol, sustainable development with Water and wastewater access in North America, Latin America, Africa, and South Asia. Micah holds an MS in Energy and Resources from the University of California, Berkeley. One fun fact Kamal and Micah are old friends and housemates from their Berkeley days. Over to you, Kamal.
1: All right, so I am delighted to be here with Micah, who, as Kirti just mentioned, not only is he an expert in green buildings and climate action more generally, but he's also a really dear friend and an old housemate from a long time ago. And I'm going to actually start with just a little personal anecdote from the time that my husband, Matthias, and Micah and I lived together in Berkeley, because Micah is well known as an expert on green buildings. What what people don't know about him is that he also knows a fair bit about electrification of vehicles and electrification of transport, and he knows this in a very personal way because when we lived together in Berkeley, he bought a very old car and he decided to personally convert the car over to an electric car. And so we had the fun experience of living with him while he was tinkering with this car and trying to figure out how to convert it from fossil fuel run vehicle to an electric vehicle. So, yeah, on that note, I'm going to jump right into the questions. So, welcome, Micah. Really great to have you with us.
2: Thanks so much for having me. Great to talk to you, Kamal.
1: So, I'm going to just start with a general question about your background. And so, just tell us a little bit about yourself and your journey to this current moment.
2: Before I jump in, I also wanted just to say happy Martin Luther King Jr. Day, which is a national holiday in the United States. And just to acknowledge that what a messed up and trying situation the United States is in right now. And that it's great to celebrate someone so important and transformational in US history like Martin Luther King Jr. and uh, try and aspire to his ideals and what he was able to accomplish. And that's the type of transformation that we find ourselves needing right now today. So anyways, how are you and your family doing, Kamal, before I start talking about myself?
1: Thanks for asking, Micah. We are all doing well. We are grateful to be doing well in this really trying time, as you mentioned, in the United States. How are you doing and how is your family?
2: We're good. We're very fortunate. live in British Columbia and the global pandemic, we're experiencing it in less acute ways than elsewhere in the world. The province and the national government have responded in a in a strong and sort of sensical way from the outset. And so we I think, find ourselves in a little bit better shape than many other places, which uh, I feel very fortunate for. But clearly, living at this moment in time, it doesn't take away from the stresses of what's going on globally with the pandemic, as well as what's going on, I think, in the United States with the racial tensions, with the tumultuous political happenings in the United States. And it doesn't take away from the fact that we're also in a climate emergency. This current moment that we find ourselves in, this moment in human history, you know, I sense it's the beginning of a turning point. I'm gonna try and put a an optimistic spin on it. I mean, we are not going to bend the trajectory of global emissions and environmental destruction, nor are we going to be able to end systemic racism and increasing equality and corporate power and erosion of democratic institutions without some sort of large, widespread global change in consciousness. And it might take some really negative and bad and powerful events for that to come about. And hopefully, we're at a turning point. We're beginning that turning point now. And I'll come back to that in a moment. But sort of going to your question, let me first talk a little bit about my own journey a bit. Because my journey did start with my own personal change in consciousness. And so going back in time, pre-teen years, growing up in a family that enjoyed the outdoors, living in Western Montana, I was very aware of the environment and how wonderful it was to spend time in the natural world. When we moved from Western Montana to the suburbs of Seattle, I was acutely aware of sort of the urban environment i lived in a small town with a few large industries i saw the effect of booming capitalism how it mixed with weak land use controls and turned the richest agricultural land in the world into distribution warehouses i saw sort of all these things and Moving from preteen to teen years, that's a moment when a lot of us start to grapple with your identity and like, what is this world we live in? And for me, that's like when I became quite a strong environmentalist. And by the time I got my driver's license at the age of 16, and uh, I think it's appropriate that you mention that story of the electric vehicle conversion in your intro, because I'm about to tell another car story. So I really wanted my driver's license and I'd always been attracted to sort of the aesthetics and mechanics and the speed of cars. But being an environmentalist, I knew how evil they were. And so if I drove one, I needed to do something to justify it. And and so in this is pre-internet days, I went to my high school library and the local library, and I educated myself on these large global companies, their supply chains and all of the really kind of terrible things that they were doing. And so when my big-hearted stepdad, he'd let me have use of our sort of old beater Mitsubishi pickup truck. Within the first week of having had my license and starting to use this truck, I went to the local hardware store and bought these big four-inch tall bright red letters and filled the entire tailgate with the words, don't buy Mitsubishi environmental and human rights violators and i drove around this small conservative town relatively conservative for western washington with in this truck because i wanted it to be a conversation starter i wanted to engage people on this issue even if it was passively and to be frank most people i think just thought i was crazy and they didn't talk to me but certainly at my high school it started conversations and of people i interacted with at my after school job and so there has to be something to kind of shake people out of their complacency and out of the the comfort that they're in. And for me, it was a number of small things that led to this sort of observing the world around me and then educating myself on like what was happening. I think it, it takes bigger events to shake people out of what, for many people, is a comfortable life. I mean, there's been a few of those in my lifetime. And Kamal, I imagine for you, it was probably... Was it the Union Carbide Gas Strategy in Bhopal? Did that have a similar effect?
1: Yeah, thanks for asking, Micah. Yeah, that was actually a really big wake-up call for me. And interestingly, I was aware of this issue in India, but I actually had to leave India and I was in the United States when I really started digging in deeper and learning more. And I, I would say that was like a really big turning point for me in terms of understanding global justice issues and environmental justice. And it turned me onto those topics and I went much deeper into them in my PhD. And just for context, the Union Garbite tragedy was a major environmental disaster that took place in India in the 1980s. And had very long lasting effects and involved a US corporation operating in India and thousands of people died in the tragedy. And there's been ongoing environmental effects due to that, even up to today. So yeah, you're totally right. I mean, I really love what you said about these kind of big events being transition moments for all of us. And I just want to sort of bring it back to green buildings. And if you could just tell us a little bit more about sort of how you went from your Mitsubishi activism to the position you hold today as senior green building planner at the city of Vancouver.
2: Sure. So I've always seen myself as someone who's working for environmental change and really interested in environmental justice issues first and sort of the the intersection of people and the environment that they live in. And even though I was have been aware of and really concerned about global warming and global climate change for a long time now, I didn't like to lead with that as a topic because for most people that you interact with and engage with, it was just too abstract to talk about global climate change. They didn't know what it meant. They didn't know how it impacted their lives. That, of course, has changed now. But before, I I wanted to engage on more specific or local issues. And so water was a major theme Mm -hmm. earlier in my career and during graduate school, looking at the intersection of water, the environment, sort of large global changes that were happening and how that's, that's impacting people's lives. During that kind of special magical bubble years of graduate school, when you're exploring the world and trying to figure out what you want to do, uh, much simpler times I must say. Looking back, I wanted to get more involved in some things, you know, local to me in North America and the community that I was living in at the time. And an opportunity got came up to work on local climate action with cities and metropolitan governments, and I sort of dove feet first into that world. Which really was quite rewarding, and it was it was something that I'd not been involved in previously, but that led to taking a bit of a meandering path. It led to my current role up in Vancouver, British Columbia, working for the government here, for the city government, focusing on green building policy. And really, I've I've become a a green building policy expert just in the last six years, where I've focused in my current position, and I think. Yeah, in a moment I can get into the you know what's unique and powerful and important about green buildings right now, but the journey was a bit meandering. Uh, I think the unifying theme there is like connecting people with the environment, and at a local level, at a local government level, you're you're able to see the impacts of that and and influence it at a at a scale that's you can actually influence and create change, which is fantastic and empowering. When you think about these challenges at a global scale, it can become overwhelming really quickly.
1: Yeah, I really like what you just said, Micah, about the fact that it's kind of hard for most people to wrap their head around the nature of climate change because it's such a big global and amorphous-seeming problem. But the space for action really is local. It's exactly where you're at. I really appreciate that. Can you tell us a little bit about your day-to-day work? So, you know, what does it look like? in a minute we'll talk about kind of big picture policies etc but we're just curious like what does your day look like and what sort of challenges do you face and also has the pandemic affected your work in any way
2: the pandemic has absolutely impacted my work and i think the challenge right now the new imperative that we're presented with is to think plan And act in a way that addresses the three global emergencies we are facing. As policymakers, you can't split issues right now. You have communities that are really struggling economically, you have racial tensions at an all time high, you have 1,864 local and other levels of government that have declared climate emergencies around the world more than 800 million people belong to those jurisdictions so you have these three major global emergencies and you have to think how can you address them concurrently and that's really forced us locally and i think in local governments around the country and and around the world are trying to figure out how to do this and the good news is there are synergies there's a lot of good news stories about how you can use Incentive programs and building codes and land use tools to spur economic growth, to spur spending in areas that's going to make our buildings better, they're going to make them more resilient, they're going to reduce greenhouse gas emissions. And so that's the kind of the big piece of work that we're trying to do right now. And I think it's not going to be possible to move forward big changes on the building fronts from a a green building perspective or from a climate mitigation perspective, unless you're addressing the other two at the same time. And so you have to be able to to speak to all three right now.
1: Can you give us a little bit of a sneak peek into a project or two that you're working on that's either already underway or in development?
2: A big new uh, initiative that came out of Vancouver in November just a couple of months ago, The city has a new climate emergency action plan, and within that plan, we have a zero emission building retrofit strategy. That was the the big piece that I worked on. But this climate emergency action plan, it brought to the forefront equity and racial justice issues, and its development was informed by a climate equity working group, and we're undertaking some work this year to formalize a climate justice charter that's going to guide work that the city is going to be doing going forward. And there's a lot of intersectional sort of cross-cutting issues that we're trying to deal with right now. One of the issues that is most acute is affordability in our city. And this is a problem in many cities in North America. And so trying to think about what does it mean for renters? What does it mean for affordability? Like how do we advance our climate mitigation efforts and address the affordability issue. And that, this is a huge challenge. We don't have answers right now, but it's something that we're specifically looking at as we start to implement the actions that were approved as part of the Climate Emergency Action Plan and our Zero Emission Building Retrofit Strategy.
1: So this is really interesting because When people think of green buildings, they don't usually think of the ways in which green building policy or programs can intersect with issues like equity and affordability. So it's really interesting and forward thinking that y'all are actually developing programming around that. And I think this is relevant, not just for Vancouver or the North America, but just generally because you've got so many places where there's just like extreme inequities in access to affordable housing so i'm just going to like stay on this topic for another minute or two can you give us like an example or two on how people who work on green building policy planning design can actually incorporate equity issues into their work
2: yeah absolutely i'll I'll give a couple of examples so the, the first is the building code To put it in generic terms, every state, and in some cases local governments, have a code that dictates how you can construct buildings. In most situations, it's the minimum. It's sort of the worst building that you're allowed to build. And it typically gets applied across an entire city or or across an entire state or province or jurisdiction with a few minor variations, depending on what type of building it is, but very rarely if ever, differing based on geography or the local context. And so you have these average conditions that are taken into account. And so when you have affordable housing that is clustered on major thoroughfares, close to highways or transit nodes or close to truck routes that is no different from the code minimum elsewhere, and and these projects are often built as cheaply as as possible because they're done with government funding and they want to maximize the number of units that are they're that constructed, you have no consideration for all those air pollutants that are in concentrations 10 times what they are on average for the city for those residents. So you have no consideration on, on the ventilation impacts and on the health impacts of those residents. That's one example. And so we really need to look at our building codes and think about, you know, who are they there to benefit? If they can't help and or if they're hurting our residents who are most vulnerable, then that's a huge failure. So you need to look at our building codes really carefully. Then from a land use perspective, I I work in the planning department of the city, and planning departments are, are sort of the architects of and currently at ground zero of instituting and upholding the most colonial-oriented and discriminatory practices in a city, and that's the sacrosanct like land use designations. And so, you know, it's upholding the character and the low-density uh, amenities associated with single-detached dwellings, segregating different uses across the city, and really upholding or exacerbating things like affordability by concentrating growth only in certain areas of a city, not allowing a more egalitarian approach to really development and, and urban living. And so also land use and land use tools are by far the most effective tool that a local government or or a state government has at their disposal, because with it, you can leverage millions or billions of dollars in assets, or which is essentially through, through the land values. And so those are two areas, both land use tools, thinking about how we can change zoning and change land use so that you're both increasing housing choice, increasing affordability, and while doing so, advancing our our green building agenda, and also just looking really closely at building codes to ensure that they're helping our residents that are most vulnerable.
1: Thanks for that, Micah. Let's bring it to carbon emissions for a moment. So buildings account for something like 38% of the planet's Carbon dioxide emissions from energy, but they're often overlooked in climate commitments. So, can you give us some examples of what, say, all the players across the building's value chain need to be doing? Just touch on like maybe two or three key interventions from a carbon reduction perspective.
2: Yeah, there's work for everybody to do. And I'm also optimistic and really heartened by recent work by a number of groups, sort of local groups globally on this topic. There's a building decarbonization coalition focused on the state of California that integrates sort of the whole value chain of players. And that's their first piece of work was to create a roadmap. And now they're they're actioning that roadmap for What do owners need to do? What do designers and consultants need to do? What role do trades and utility companies need to play? And then critically, what do local, state, or provincial and federal governments need to do? We're undertaking similar work to that in in British Columbia. We have a building electrification roadmap that's going to roll out quite shortly. And in going through this exercise and bringing together stakeholders from all these different groups it really becomes clear that everyone needs to play a role. So starting at the top, the money comes from the states and the federal government. So that money come in the form of incentives to drive consumers towards products, specific products like heat pumps. You've got the power of taxes, whether it's tax breaks or tax incentives to, to for those types of investments. And then you also have the building codes. So they often originate at the state or the federal level. And so those pieces are critical moving over to the utilities like there's a lot of barriers currently in place to electrify our buildings and electrification is what we need to do like that needs to be the focus and so utilities can do a lot of work to remove costs to remove complexity in the process for electrifying more of the end uses within buildings and then there's a lot of things that that an owner can do who's interested in doing their share interested in some of the new technologies there's a lot of things that they can be asking of their consultants asking of their trades and in most situations you can find a solution that works even in the face of some of the the barriers that might exist in the building code or some of the the financial barriers there's often always a building specific solution that's going to significantly reduce your greenhouse gas emissions as well as beneficial to that owner and the residents or the the occupants in that building in the long term
1: that's great, Micah. It's great to hear that there's just a role for everybody to play. I'm curious if you have faced in your own work any particular challenges, like are there sectors that you work with or just particular policies that just seem harder to implement and what those challenges are and how you are going about dealing with them?
2: The Some of the greatest challenge is working collaboratively with and between the large bureaucratic organizations sort of namely state or provincial government the utilities and then the local government or the cities like those are players that really do need to be coordinated and to work well together they need to be at the table together they need to be on the same using the same play sheet for how they're going to reduce emissions in the built environment and be on the same page about what are the barriers that are trying to be removed. And that often involves looking at changing policies or changing financial drivers or incentives that are cross-cutting, that are bigger than just the issue at hand. And that requires dedication from an organizational perspective and commitment to this process and sort of trust as well that this work is being done in good faith and that you have a, a willing and able partner. And so going back to the climate emergency declarations and the fact that so many levels of government and governments around the world have have recognized this, that's huge because it's normalizing the fact that we need to invest significant public resources to address these challenges. And that is opening the door for these collaborations between organizations that typically might find it more difficult to work together on such a daunting challenge or issue.
1: Let's spend a few minutes talking about technology. So can you just tell us a little bit about some technologies that are just enabling the transitions for green buildings right now and are there sort of particular things in the pipeline or even just currently on the market that you're particularly excited about that just seem to offer a lot of hope for the transition?
2: There's a lot of really exciting and interesting technology innovation and development that's happening in the green building world right now. There's a lot of interesting work and exciting work going on the building envelope side, building ventilation side, as well as the mechanical systems on the heating side. I'll start with the envelope, uh, or the you know the walls, the windows, the doors of buildings. Going back a decade, or actually a little bit less than that, thinking locally where I'm at in the city of Vancouver, we realized that our buildings were really poorly performing from a thermal efficiency perspective like the walls and windows were just leaking heat and poorly performing in all respects and so we looked around at opportunities for for how to fix this and so one really important standard from a market transformation perspective that's been really influential in in Europe and in North America as well as is the passive house standard we reference it in our voluntary building standards for that basically incentivizes higher levels of performance for new buildings in exchange for increased density um, so we've we've referenced the passive house standard to that effect and it's seen huge market uptake as a result and that's the most important thing for new construction is is reduce the thermal demand for energy for heating first and then you can figure out how you're going to provide that energy as a second point because that envelope should last 60 years if it's well constructed and it's what sort of the starting point for a building in terms of its performance so you have to get that right first there's been a lot of new technologies around windows innovations and how you build wall assemblies and this is also a great news story from a local economic development because many of these products in order to be implemented cost effectively in a building have to be manufactured within the region because it's expensive and cumbersome to ship windows and wall assemblies and other things long distances. And so we've seen a huge boom to the local window manufacturing industry locally, as has been the case in other places in North America, as they've, there's been increased interest and uptake of, of passive house or of passive building technologies. So that's been a, a really a good news story. Maybe just speaking briefly on the mechanical side, heat pumps are super important. Basically, a heat pump is a device that moves uh, heat energy from one side of a partition to another. And so, in the summer, you can use it to, one to cool your building for space heat. Uh, winter, you can use it to heat it. And they operate at efficiencies. Or in the mechanical engineering world, uh, the coefficient of performance of of greater than one or greater than 100%. And so you have both a huge gain in efficiency, but also as their runoff of electricity, most commonly, a shift away from the more carbon-intensive heating sources uh, in North America, in Vancouver, certainly the case, many buildings, the majority of buildings are heated by natural gas, which is really problematic from a climate perspective. It's problematic because it leaks. There's tons of emissions that happen from its extraction. It leaks in its distribution. It leaks when it's stored. It leaks in buildings and homes, which is, in many cases, not accounted for in the greenhouse gas inventories. And then, of course, when you combust it as well, it it produces emissions. Uh, And so there's a lot of work to do in many Parts of the world and regionally as well to reduce the carbon intensity of the electricity grid. But we need to, in some instances, compartmentalize or break up the problem. And so in British Columbia, we're fortunate to have a very low greenhouse gas intensity for our electricity grid because of a lot of legacy large hydroelectric facilities. But the innovation in in heat pump design technology helps accelerate that and helps enable that because you're able to reduce the consumption of electricity through having greater and greater efficiency pieces of equipment that come in more sizes and more are appropriate for a wide range of different applications. So initially what you might have seen just on sort of two ends of the spectrum, like little units that were appropriate for heating like a single room and like really, really big units that are designed for large office building now, we're starting to see units come into our market that are appropriate for many more different types of applications. And as their market share grows, the the costs come down as well. And so that's another really key piece for enabling this this low-carbon transition.
1: Well, that's a lot of new, exciting technology coming on the market. One of the things that really struck me as you were speaking was this aspect of the fact that retrofitting or green buildings actually really stimulates the local economy by creating all this local manufacturing. That's a really sort of interesting, not even a side effect, just a really major impact that people don't typically associate with green buildings. And so I think it's really useful to highlight that, that it sort of not only ends up creating local jobs in the construction and retrofitting industry itself, but also in the manufacturing sector, like you mentioned around windows and other parts of the building envelope sort of technologies. Uh, So just kind of staying on this topic again, since, you know, we've touched on equity a few times and, you know, trying to sort of take a global perspective now, say in places where governments may not have a lot of money or uh, people, there's there's a lot of poor people concentrated in in cities. Are there interesting and innovative ways of financing these kinds of new types of green buildings and uh, retrofits? that you've seen or noticed that have more global relevance as well?
2: Yeah, there's a lot of examples of effective financial tools that are out there. And this is actually a space that we're going to be investing some time ourselves here in the British Columbia and the greater Vancouver region to roll out. I would say we're behind many places in terms of financial tools, but it's there's a lot of promising examples to point to globally. I think an innovation that originated in, in North America was the property assessed financing. And this is this has been really effective for both commercial buildings as well as residential buildings where the local government plays a role so that they step in and attach the debt associated with energy upgrade projects to the property tax bill, which allows a much longer payback period for investment and also ensures really low interest rates because the borrowing ability of, of local governments, they're able to access much lower interest rates than an individual would. And so this has been really effective, I think, in multiple places in the United States. It's been quite effective for, in, on the commercial side in class, sort of B and C office buildings and other kind of small to mid-size commercial buildings where they might not have the same access to credit as the sort of the big players do. And it also eliminates The really important barrier of the fact that in most commercial lease situations, the tenant who's paying for the energy. And so there's this split incentive that exists because of that, where the owner is investing in the building, but it's the tenant or the lessee who is paying the energy bill. And so by taking that financing off book, putting it on the property tax, as well as allowing it, and because in most lease situations, the tenant is paying a part of that property tax bill, and that's that's the structure of most commercial leases, then you've eliminated that, that split incentive as well. And so it's become a really powerful tool from that perspective. There's also been a lot of success, and this is more so in Europe, but there's growing interest. And I think a program is about to be launched here in Canada on much larger scale financing, where uh, federal or central governments play a role, where they aggregate hundreds or thousands of projects together they're able to use access super low financing rates and also working at scale they're able to basically turn these into assets that can then be sold to investors financial resources are limited but if you're able to get the investment world interested in these and turn it into a financial product you've eliminated that barrier as well and so There's a number of national-scale energy retrofit initiatives that have taken place in European countries through the European Investment Bank. The Canadian government just announced a program that's going to be run through the Canada Infrastructure Bank that's focused on commercial buildings that's going to be on the order of $1 billion focused on retrofits and utilizing a similar approach. And so there's things that can take that are interesting that are taking place across the whole spectrum of scale from individual building an individual homeowner getting a loan on their property tax bill all the way up to sort of national level programs and this is really important because if you're going to drive change you need to be sending the right financial signals and this work is critical to do initially because you need to change the market like you need to put in place The signals so that the market is going to evolve it's going to become mature and then you need the codes and the standards those are critical as well and so you can't just choose one or the other you need to have an approach that has the financial incentives in place you need to have the codes and standards and then you need to also have the supporting pieces there to help both building owners understand what they need to do how they can do it as well as support for the trades and the industry, the folks who are going to be implementing these changes too.
1: What I'm finding really interesting is I feel like when I started this conversation, I had a much more limited understanding of green buildings. And I'm beginning to see how this sort of lens or focus on green buildings can actually be a way of addressing some critical equity issues in cities. It's a way of generating a lot of local employment decent livelihoods, and it's also a way of unleashing some really innovative finance in general. So the fact that kind of states and cities and federal governments can create these sorts of green bonds and then use it uh, to basically finance green buildings, and therefore it has a sort of multiplier effect on the local economy. So there's a lot of interesting win-win situations that can be enabled through just this world of green buildings. Let's focus a little bit more again on Canada. The Canada Green Building Council recently released the Climate Forward Report. What are some key highlights of this report that you could share that you find particularly exciting?
2: Sure, yeah. This follows on what you were just mentioning, Kamal, and the and in, in the conversation we were just having. The report is focused on on a economic stimulus and recovery from the global pandemic that is going to have result in a significant decrease in greenhouse gas emissions from our buildings so the report looked at okay what would it take to reduce greenhouse gas emissions from the building sector 50 percent in the next decade which is what the climate models call for i mean if we're going to be on track to avoid catastrophic climate change we need to be reducing emissions 50% in the next decade. And so the report looked at look okay for buildings what does this mean what can we we be doing? And the modeling showed that there's going to be close to a million and a half jobs generated at a national level in Canada which is going to have billions of dollars in economic benefits if you're going to make this a, a priority reducing the emissions and the reason you're able to have such a huge economic benefit is is for the reasons that we've been touching on in this conversation. I mean, there's in this shift to greener technologies, there's a lot of local economic benefits, like from the manufacturing side to the skilled trade side, even to the building owner side, where even though there might be some small incremental cost increases for these technologies, in the long run. They're going to be better off in many cases from an operational perspective. And, and the co-benefits are, are often quite large to buildings for, for some of these investments. Another key part of this, and you know, we've been touching on this, is this has its origins even before the current focus on what are pandemic and climate coordinated response is going to look like and that's the just transition framework that emerged from the trade union movement to encompass really a a whole range of social interventions that are needed for workers within uh, the skilled trades so that as economies and priorities shift from these traditional more resource-intensive or carbon-intensive approaches to those that are going to be low-carbon in nature and that are focused on protecting the environment and mitigating climate change, that they're included in this process and that they're benefiting as well. And I think having the Just Transition framework or movement already established has really prepared us well for this moment to move quickly to low-carbon buildings. It's something that industry is familiar with, And quite frankly, speaking about the skilled trades, like they as a whole are always having to adapt to change. And it's something that they know it's their industry is always changing. And I think the change that we're talking about now is might be a little bit faster and some of the shifts are a little bit more significant, but we know it's coming. Governments are sending the the signal that this transition is going to take place. And knowing that, we can prepare adequately. We can work with we beating different levels of government can work with industry associations and industry groups and trade unions to identify what are the the upskilling that's required do you need to create a new micro credential for example that someone who has a gas ticket or is a red seal plumber or has already gone through their hvac training but maybe there's a need for a new certification for a new type of system like a air to water heat pump which is becoming increasingly important in new construction here in vancouver so you can work with industry to develop these new training programs so that you start to put in place the training now as the demand increases from those incentives and those those financial tools that government utilities are utilizing in advance of the codes coming in place and so another example of how you need to work in a coordinated manner and that industry can really benefit. I mean, sure, there's going to be a decrease in work for gas fitters over time, but it's going to be a gradual transition. It's not going to happen overnight. And if we work in a collaborative manner in this, there's going to be plenty of opportunities for folks who are in the middle of their career or earlier in their career to upskill so that they can work on the new technology and the new equipment when it is introduced.
1: Fantastic. I mean, it seems like a lot of what's in the Climate Forward report and the plans is quite widely relevant as well. And just sort of as tools of like economic recovery, just generally there's a lot of good learning in there for lots of places, I think. Let's talk a little bit about general awareness about this. So do you feel like there's you know awareness in the media about what's happening around green buildings or are there ways in which you wish the media talked about it differently? Any thoughts on that?
2: I would say the the issue or the topic that the media has become or is very interested in in the last year has to do with the transition from fossil gas to electricity or to cleaner sources of energy. And this has been, as a result of all of the progressive work, that local governments are doing in this space as they look at updating their codes both their their zoning and development policies as well as their building codes to transition away from from gas using equipment and obviously there's people in the in the short run there's companies in the short run who are going to be negatively impacted by that the, primarily those who have a strong economic interest in in fossil gas or natural gas as it's called in North America. And so that's gotten a lot of media stories. And it's getting, I'd say, pretty fair coverage of the issue. I mean, it's something that is, in some places, is being called a gas ban. And that's not just the language of industry who is opposed to it. It's like the language of the local governments and the advocates for this transition. They're calling it, we need a gas ban. In other places, it's, it's much more Nuance, And it's not actually a gas ban. And, and that's coming to where I'm at in Vancouver. We're taking the approach of collaborating with our our gas utility. And going back five years ago, we did have the media and industry groups and the city basically in a public relations battle over this topic when the city first made strong commitments for reducing greenhouse gas emissions over the next coming decades. But that's evolved into a a more constructive partnership. And it's the realization that what matters is reducing carbon emissions. Like That's what matters. And we're fortunate in that there are renewable alternatives to fossil gas, and there's quite a large supply of it comparatively in British Columbia than elsewhere. And so if you're able to take waste methane from landfills, from dairies, from other waste sources and incorporate that into the the gas distribution infrastructure and network that significantly lowers the the greenhouse gas impact and so looking at those both as a as a transition resource as well for some specific applications where they might really need just high temperatures for for the operation in industry it could be a long-term solution as well but the other i think reason why you know, in our case, I don't think the gas ban rhetoric is helpful. Is that some of the most cost effective short term ways to significantly reduce greenhouse gas emissions? I mean, we're talking about, you know, an 80% reduction at a building scale is to go to a hybrid system where you have a heat pump that is going to be doing 90% of the work for that building. But because of the huge incremental costs to go to, A larger heat pump for the coldest days of the year to cover its heating needs, it makes sense to have that gas system there and to to provide peaking or to provide backup. And that's exactly what we need in the short term, something that makes sense economically from the building owner that's going to have a huge impact on reducing emissions. And so we don't need a gas ban today. I think eventually we do need to completely decarbonize our buildings, but today we need solutions that make sense economically and then also going to get us those huge emission reductions as well. And so hopefully this will grow in terms of general public awareness as well as media's coverage. And I think we've really been seeing that in the past year and hopefully that that continues because it's something that hopefully everyone is is thinking about when it comes time to replace their hot water tank or their furnace or their heating system, their large building. And they're aware of the trade-offs and the the pros and cons of the different systems and they're thinking about what can I do to make a difference.
1: Thanks for that, Micah. And I, I think you make this really important point that people often miss that sometimes it's just the last 10% that's really expensive. And so you can get to that 90% and you shouldn't let the hundred percent be the enemy of the ninety percent. And it sort of reminds me of this recent report That came out in the U.S. the 2035 report that was led by Amol Fadke at the Lawrence Berkeley Lab and his team, uh, where they found that for the whole electricity system in general in the U.S. you can get to 90% clean energy by 2035. So that's really soon, and you know it's a much more ambitious goal than people have been traditionally talking about. So you can get there by 2035 if you aim for 90%, and you can do it more cheaply than current rates of electricity. So you can actually reduce the cost of electricity and get to 90% clean energy. And it's that last 10% that we can sort of begin to plan for that, but we shouldn't let that be the thing that holds us up. And it seems like the same is true in in green buildings as well. And that's just an interesting story that media could maybe emphasize a little bit more, especially as we're talking about all this infrastructure that we already have, gas infrastructure, and potentially using it as a transition for a while. Just gonna ask one last question because I'm a little bit conscious of time, you know, just ending on a more personal note, coming at it from the perspective of climate smart buildings, but also just all the other issues we touched on today, the intersection of climate action and equity and just your own personal work experience. What would your call of action be to our listeners? Just giving you a sense that, you know, our listeners, they come from all over the world and they are all really interested in taking some kind of climate action, both professionally and personally?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. I think the first half of my answer will be just to reiterate and emphasize what you just said, Kamal. This opportunity we have to decarbonize our built environment is one that doesn't have to be painful from an economic perspective and actually could be beneficial in many instances. and, And focusing on how we get these deep reductions. We don't have to go to zero tomorrow. We need to do something that that is going to have huge reductions and make sense for each building that we're talking about. And as you mentioned, getting to 80 or 90% can be cost-effective, whereas getting to 100% right now doesn't make sense, but we can get there eventually. And so focusing on the opportunities in the short term from a carbon reduction perspective is really important. And on a personal note, as we... Work to try and address these three global emergencies that we're facing right now. It's really important that those of us who are in a position of privilege, who are either because of the position we have in our job or who we are individually in society, myself, I find myself in quite a position of privilege being a white male working in a stable job getting to influence policy and government like there's a lot of privilege that comes with that and so you need to really recognize that and to make an effort to reach out to groups and involve groups that have not benefited in the past and are not benefiting from the policies and the investment and the money that is flowing within the green building industry and so sort of a challenge that our Green Building team in Vancouver set for ourselves for this year is to reach out to a group or individuals in the local community that you don't have a connection to, that we've not worked with before, and to develop a relationship with them and use that to strengthen and broaden our work in this area. We really cannot say that we're addressing the climate crisis in an equitable manner in a manner that's going to benefit all residents if we don't have those connections and if we're not building a a big enough tent to have a meaningful conversation and dialogue. And so I think I would challenge folks to broaden your social network, both professionally and personally, and to think about how you can incorporate more ideas and more people into your work.
1: I really love that suggestion, Micah. I love this idea of, especially using this sort of pandemic time step back a little and think about important relationships and how you could potentially build new important relationships. I really, as a sort of concluding note, I love how we found so many intersections between green buildings work and the project of advancing equity, because like you, I firmly believe that we have to see these issues through an integrated lens because they are so deeply connected. And it's really heartening to hear about everything that's going on in Vancouver around this and in Canada more generally and also just understand that a lot of global potential for more of this kind of work it was also really interesting to hear about the technology side of things and the fact that there's all the innovative financing available now that private sector can avail of and also create local employment through that project so uh, lots of ways in which the project and policies of advancing green buildings are just kind of integrated and connected to just broader goals as a society. So I really appreciate you sharing all your insights. It's also just super cool to reconnect with an old friend and to hear all about your work and about all these other initiatives that are going on as well. So wanted to say a great big thank you on behalf of Terra, and we wish you all the very best in this really important work.
2: My pleasure, Kamal. Really great to talk to you as always.